My name is Keith Beavers, and for the entirety of my life, I thought it was Patty Cake, Patty Cake Bakers, man, but it's Pat A Cake. Oh my god, that makes so much more sense. What's going on, wine lovers from the Vine Pairs Podcasting Network? This is Wine 101, and my name is Keith Beavers. I'm the Tastings Director of Vine Pair, and how are you doing? Okay, people have been DMing. People have been asking for like three years. Here we are, the Super Tuscan story. It's cool. It's fun. Let's get into it. This episode of Wine 101 features Mays Row Wine Merchants' esteemed partner, Broncaia, a winery located in the centuries-old wine region of Tuscany, Italy, the subject of our deep dive today. Broncaia has crafted acclaimed complex wine that has captured the Tuscan identity and terroir for over 40 years. This is where wine meets world history. We're talking Renaissance, architecture, medieval cities, ancient vines... To try Broncaia, follow the link in the episode description to BarrelRoom.com, where you'll find a Chianti Classico and a critically acclaimed Trey Red Blend. Okay, wine lovers. No, literally, seriously, people have been asking about Super Tuscans for quite some time now, and I'm glad we're, we're here. <laughs> I'm glad we're here. Because... The term or this idea, the thing that we call the Super Tuscans, it's it's cool. Um, but the thing about this word, first of all, it's one word. No one said that had to be one word. It says Super Tuscans. Um, for some reason, it's not super and then Tuscans. It's just all one word. And it's like, is Tuscan um, capitalized? Is it not capitalized? Anyway, doesn't matter. This term indoors today but the thing is just like the word meritage has anyone heard of the word meritage some of you raising your hands some of you raising your hands you okay great you right remember that <laughs> meritage is a word that was once used in california to define red wine blends in california that used specifically only bordeaux varieties that that doesn't really happen anymore because no one really cares. Make good wine and 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 just you know then the red blend is now a thing, and you can't really do a merit. I mean, whatever. It's it's just an old term that no longer it exists, but no one really uses it anymore. Super Tuscan is one of those words, but the story and the impact that it had on our culture is huge, and in Italy. And what's also interesting is the word Super Tuscan, or the term Super Tuscan, whatever, is uniquely English, in that there was something like it being spoke in Italy at the time, we'll get into the story, but it's a very uniquely English word used for us to define something that is, that we were a little bit confused on what it was actually. <laughs> so without further ado, let's just talk about this thing. Because today, there are Super Tuscans technically, but there really aren't as well. And the fact that there are not really Super Tuscans anymore is kind of great. And we'll get into that. Let's talk about it. If you've listened to our Tuscany episode, 
the Sangiovese slash Chianti episode or the most recent kind of detailed Chianti episode, maybe give those a listen before or after this episode because it all kind of ties in. And I'll go ahead and put those links, those hyperlinks in the description of this episode so you can just kind of go straight to there. Okay, so Italy. Before its Appalachian system was created, um, in actually almost every country, <laughs> before an Appalachian system is created, often what is being grown in the vineyards would be, okay, maybe one variety, but also maybe a few varieties. And for a long time, they were just mixed like everywhere else in Europe, just like field blends. And then over time, the guy, Baron Ricasoli, this is in a few uh, previous episodes that you're going to listen to, but when the formula for Chianti was agreed upon through experimentation, and then when the, um, the authorities awarded Chianti its DOC, then eventually DOCG, at that moment, that blend became law. So no longer was it financially advantageous just to make an awesome whatever blend of whatever you got around. It now was, if you want to be a Chianti, you have to do this. And at that, that right there, in a lot of places in Europe and in, in the New World for wine, that is a point of contention for a lot of winemakers. You have winemakers that it would absolutely adhere to the laws. That's great. Thank you so much. We can put this on the label. It's easier for distribution, easier for marketing, all this. But then you have some winemakers like, I get all that, and that's really cool, but now I can no longer do what I want and still have the prestige of my region. Now I have to adhere to some rules to get that prestige. And that was a point of contention. And we talked about the Languedoc Roussillon, the Languedoc episode, there's a little bit of that as well. And so while Chianti was evolving as a wine region, and as it was expanding, and people were able to blend 20% of white wine into the red wine blend, increasing volumes, at some point, the quality of Chianti began to dilute because of this mass not mass production, but they were scaling up and they were using that 20% of white wine to help scale it up. And not everybody in Chianti was doing this, but enough people were doing this that the reputation of the region started to kind of decline a little bit. No one was going to give up on Chianti, but I'm like, hey, what are you guys doing? So it, stories emerge about winemakers in the area that do what they want to do. And they make wine, whether you know whether it's good or not, but they make their wine. And because they don't adhere to the rules, they have to be called vino da tavola. Now, the vino da tavola used to be a term relegated to the lowest rung on the ladder for Italian wine. After the Appalachians were um, created and awarded, you would have vino da tavola, then you would have DOC, Demonazione Origine Controllata. Then you would have DOCG, which is the same thing with a garantita at the end. Just different tiers of restrictions and laws to protect and preserve legacies and all. So this is the 1960s. While all this is happening, 
there's this kind of big family called the Antinori family. They were one of the founding, not the founding families of Florence, but they were a banking family that came from the countryside while Florence was being built in the, um, I think it was the 14th century they came about. So they've been around for a while. <laughs> and their presence has been there for a long time. So by the 1960s, that family was very well established in this area. Not only that, but their family was kind of big. And two wines that are were one immediately connected to the Antinori family, the other one connected through an extension of the family. Because of their influence, because of their place in this region, the wines that they made made such an impact that people started noticing something different happening in a land where the the general idea is we're just putting as much of the 20% wine in these blends as we can. And here we are at a point where, you know, whenever we talk about wine, especially old stuff, <laughs> we talk about what we think may have happened. And there's a lot of legends and it mixes with reality and all that, but the stories are fun. And when it comes to Italy, wow, there are so many myths and legends and stories around wine. And it's always, it's mostly just, you know, Middle Ages and before and around there. This is one that's in the modern era, in that a lot of things happened between these two families and these two, or this family in extension and the two wines. The details are kind of foggy, but the general. Focus? So you have uh, Niccolo Antinori in 1966 who inherits his family's business, the winery. And it's not doing terrible, but it's not really doing well. And he's trying to figure out the next like, uh, path for his family's business. There's talk that he actually went to California and met with Robert Mondavi and saw what was going on in America and said, oh, wow, that's really amazing. I'm going to do that. That I'm not sure it's true, but it's kind of fun. So he comes back, and on the property, there's a vineyard called Tignanello. And this is one of those vineyards that has multiple varieties in it because at some point, he comes back and says, you know what, we're dropping the white wine from this blend. At the time, it was required for Chianti to have 20 to 30% of white wine blended into the wine. He's like, nah, I'm not doing that. And in addition, I'm going to use smaller, newer barrels called Barriques. And without that white wine in the blend, it was no longer a Chianti DOC. It had to be a vino de tavla, the lowest rung on the ladder. And then in the 1975 vintage of Tignanello, Tignanello, the vineyard, is derived, they say, from the Etruscan uh, god Tinia, which is kind of Zeus, the Zeus of the Etruscan mythology. But in that vintage, they added a little bit of Cabernet Sauvignon, and that went way, whoa, 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 whoa. first you're dropping the white wine, now you're putting Cabernet Sauvignon in it. Oh my gosh, you're still Vino de Tavola. Gosh. And right next to the Tignanello vineyard is a vineyard called Solaya. And in 1978, the Antinori family produced Solaya, which was initially 80% Cabernet Sauvignon and 20% Cab Franc. These days, it's not like that anymore. These days, it's mostly Sangiovese. So the Tignanello, because of... Um, you know, the influence of the Antonori family is considered one of the first, like, okay, so this is Vino de Tavola, but this is not just Vino de Tavola. In the extended Antinori family, there is a man by the name of Marchese Incisa della Rocchetta. 
And this guy marries into a family and the dowry gives him, I think it was like over 7,000 acres of land. And he was an Italian, an, a, a Tuscan, obsessed with the wines of Bordeaux. And he wanted to create that vibe, <laughs> the Bordeaux wines, but he wanted, he wanted to do it in Tuscany in, on his estate in, just outside of Bulgari in, in, in Tuscany towards the coast. And so what he did was he started planting Cabernet Sauvignon and Cab Franc. And he had one vineyard in 1944 called uh, Castiglioncello. And then just below that vineyard, he built a vineyard called Sassicaia. Sassicaia is, the thing is, this guy loved Bordeaux so much and Grave was one of his favorites. So Grave meaning gravel, Sassicaia is loosely translated to um, the the laying of stones, scattering of stones. So it kind of has a gravel vibe to it. So you see what he was doing there. And these wines he was making, Cab Franc, Cab, Cab Sauvignon, Cab Franc, was solely for his family. He just wanted to make really great wine, like Bordeaux style, and just live this Bordeaux style life in Tuscany. But his friends and his family, including the Antinoids, were like, look, this wine is so good you should definitely commercially release this thing this is this is ridiculous just like that <laughs> but then in 1968 they release commercially sasikaya okay so here we are these two fam this long well, two people one family extended or not release these wines that are outside of the rules. And so because of their prestige and because of their, you know, who they are, it was weird that these wines were just vino de tavola. They were not DOC anything. And Jedi wine master Jancis Robinson calls Tignanello and Sasikaya, I mean, even Salaya, um, the prototypes for the Super Tuscan. And a lot of this work has to be credited to two enologists, one Emile Pinode and Giacomo Takis. These are the two guys that kind of led and helped these this family and extended family make these wines in the way they were made to make the impact that they made. So by the late 1970s into the early 80s, this there was a word being bounced about in the area of Tuscany and it wasn't super Tuscan, but it was sort of on that level of these wines are absolutely stunning and powerful, but they're vino de tavola and people like they just can't be called that. It has to be something else. American journalists come over and they're doing their regular tastings and they taste some of these vino de tavolas and they're like, Oh my gosh, these are amazing. Now this is another one of those foggy places. There are some wine critics that are one or two, some wine critics that believe they are the ones that created the term super Tuscan or they heard it in Italy and they brought it back, put it in print. I don't know who it was. I don't think it really matters, but what matters is the word super Tuscan becomes very, very popular. And by the 1980s, everyone's looking for super Tuscans. And if you think about it, in the United States, we are going through a, well, we're realizing that in California, cab is going to be our number one. We're starting to get in, we're starting to really understand bigger, fuller bodied wines in the 80s. Robert Parker is doing his thing. So for us and our palates, if a, if a, 
prestigious, expensive wine is coming to us from Italy, and it's Cabernet Sauvignon and Cab Franc, and it's big and bold and powerful with a tannic frame, oh, yeah, we're loving that. So the Super Tuscan thing blows up on the American market. The Italians are like, whoa, the Tuscans are like, whoa, this is crazy. And for a while there, the Super Tuscan thing became, it was just like, it was, it was as popular, if not more popular than Chianti wine. Even Chianti Classico, what? So in the early 90s, the authorities uh, for wine in Italy were like, okay, we got to do something about this. This is crazy. So they came up with an idea and implemented it in 1994. They brought a new acronym into the world of wine in Italy, where once it was Vino da Tavola, D-O-C, D-O-C-G. Now, Vino da Tavola is gone. And instead of Vino da Tavola, it's I-G-T, Indicazione Geografica Tipica. Then D-O-C, then D-O-C-G. And what I-G-T did... What that did is it opened up a whole new world of Italian wine. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a category where you do whatever you want to do with whatever grapes you want to do it with, as long as those grapes are within the indicated geographic, geographic area, geographic atypica, meaning the varieties have to be atypical of that area. And if Cabernet Sauvignon has been in that area since the 1940s, then that is typical of the area because it's in the area. So it's just basically do whatever you want, and you can call it an IGT. So really today, if a Tuscan wine is made, and it's made outside of the rules of any of the DOCs or DOCGs in Tuscany, it is no longer called Vino da Tavola. It's called an IGT. So what that did in 1994 is kind of got rid of the Super Tuscan term. Because now, all of Italy was doing this. There were Super Friulians, <laughs> Super Campanians, Super Lazians. Not Super Piemontese. It's a whole different world. We'll talk about that at some point. And because all IGTs were becoming Super this and Super that, it kind of diluted the Super Tuscan term a little bit. And what was a Super Tuscan now? We had IGT. And there is something so wonderful about the IGT. The Italians were really smart here because Super Tuscans is cool, but this applies IGT to the entire country. And like I said, it opened up all these different new wines for us to explore. Italians can, winemakers can now just do whatever they want and, and make really great, wacky, cool stuff and they can also make their DOC and DOCG stuff to, you know, to make their money and have this other IGT fun. I don't know. I think it's kind of great. So that's how it happened with the Super Tuscans. It was, it was a family, an extended family, that is very prominent in the region. They did something different. And because of their place in this region, the popularity gained and gained and gained. American media saw it. The Super Tuscan thing became a thing, and but that all needed to happen to get to the IGT and give Italian winemakers the freedom to be as creative as they want with wine. All right, that's it. I love the Super Tuscan story because it's a great story of evolution in wine. 
And today, if you get an IGT from Tuscany, call it a super, call it a super Tuscan. It's cool. Whatever. I'm just they they exist. I'm just saying, like, you know, the word is not as a thing as much as it once was, but it's sticking around because in the past three years, I've been getting people saying, "Hey, man, you doing the super Tuscan thing?" Here's the super Tuscan thing. I'll see you guys next week. Find Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. J. Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pair's Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide range of favorites ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wine. I mean, Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but you know, this is a wine podcast. So whether you're new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. We look forward to serving you enjoyment in moments that matter. Cheers. Visit BarrelRoom.com today to find your next favorite where shipping is available.